Good morning. Scripture reading for the lesson is from 2 Samuel chapter 22, verses 26 through 29. Again, 2 Samuel 22, verses 26 through 29. And the word says, To the faithful you show yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure, but to the devious you show yourself true. You have the humble, but your eyes, you save the, the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. You, Lord, are my lamp. The Lord turns my darkness into light. Good morning. On a day that our country has set aside to recognize fathers, we call it Father's Day, I simply want to uh, commend you, fathers, for the good work that you are doing and uh, the many good things you have done, the influences that you have had and are having, and I want to also call you up to greater heights today. I'd say happy Father's Day I have to some of you. I know it's not a happy day for everyone. Like other holidays, sometimes it brings heartache in the loss of a father or a broken relationship. And so, generally speaking, it's hard to say, happy Father's Day, fathers. I understand that. So, let's look at it as maybe a, a day where, fathers, we can be fruitful, uh, prosperous with the day that we have and the time that we've been given and the responsibilities to which we're called. Perhaps now, as much as any time in the history of mankind, we need fathers who are godly fathers. I haven't prepared a Father's Day sermon, quote-unquote, but the lesson that you'll get from today's uh, discussion is, is a lesson that is as great as any that I could put forth to you as a father or a mother uh, in order for you to make yourself right with God and to make the impact upon your family that you need to be able to have. If you can learn from David as we study yet another element of his life today, uh, you will be able to show a pattern of how God works in His overall scheme of redemption right in your very life to your very loved ones. And so I hope that you'll listen closely. I hope that you'll take your Bible and follow along and just the couple scripture readings we're going to have today. I want you to secure a Bible and read along and, and um, uh, follow along with me some of the great work that God has done in, in the life of this person, David. The reading was taken from 2 Samuel 22, which also is, with slight modification, Psalm 18. 2 Samuel 22 is a slight modification, slight variations from Psalm 18. And David wrote it concerning the great deliverances of the Lord for His people on the field of battle. So he's reflecting upon God's work in his life in the battlefield, but then he takes this little section and it's like he steps back away and says, there are, there are also great victories that the Lord has wrought in my spiritual battlefield. And so he posed uh, this 
section of text up here for us to see how God looks upon men um, specifically, individually, in person, like David. We have been reading through the Old Testament this year. Many of you are engaged in it. If you're not, I, I, I hope and pray, actually, that you would engage in our readings. At any time, you can pick up where we are and join us. And uh, through reviewing, like I've just done and will continue to do for a moment, you'll be able to piece together where you're at and pick up where we're going and, and get the big picture, if you will, uh, this meta-narrative of the Bible, that is to stand back from the Bible, to, to kind of get out from one book that you're reading in one passage and stand back and say, what is God doing in the whole book? Uh, what's He trying to do from beginning to end? There's 66 volumes bound together in this book that we're holding. And we'll see when we do that a unity in theme. I've adopted for our preaching purposes, a framework uh, under the promises of God. There are a number of ways that you could read through and preach through the Bible and see what God is doing. There's a number of themes that you could trace. We have specifically been focusing on the promises. From the time in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve, in that perfect environment, first sinned, and God came to them and called out their names and then called out their sin, from that time, God began to work out His plan of restoring man. And that's a key word today that I want you to hold on to. On my iPad up here, by the way, fellows in the, in the back room, it says unable to connect. So if you want to advance it, you can. I don't, I don't have need of any further uh, slides today. So... Uh, I want you to remember this idea today. And we're going to sing a song at the close uh, Cody's picked out called Restore My Soul. And when we get to that song, I want you to be able to sing it and understand what you're singing with, with greater understanding. God began to restore man when He told Eve, specifically Eve, in a general promise. Adam and Eve, He said, actually to Satan, He said that the seed of woman would come and would defeat you. He'll overcome your power. He'll bruise your head. He'll crush you, though you'll strike at Him. Strike at His heel. He'll crush your head. And that was a general promise. You'd read over that and you may not understand it at all until you went further and further into the Bible. When you come to chapter 12 of Genesis, although much time has passed, a lot of drama has, has uh, certainly uh, unfolded. When you come to chapter 12, he narrows it down to an individual named, who was it? The promise to Abraham. He narrowed it down to him and said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And I know you and your wife are older. I know she's barren. You've been trying to have children all your life, but you're going to have a child. Now that shocked them. Little did they know they'd have to wait 30 more years until he was 100 and she was 90 before they bore that child named Isaac. And God began to work through that lineage known as the Hebrews or Jews to bring about this person that would bless all the earth. All the families of the earth, including you and yours and me and mine. But recently, 
in our readings, we've come to another marquee point, another passage that is a billboard. Again, you might read through 2 Samuel chapter 7 and never stop to blink at it. But be careful when you see passages like this where God makes a promise concerning the future, number one, where He uses words like forever, and He says to a man like David, David, from your body a king will come who will reign forever. I'm going to call him my son. He'll call me his father. Now we understand that to have dual meaning. David's son Solomon would reign after him. He would build a temple for God, but God told uh, David, he said, I really don't need you to build me a temple. I'm going to build you a house. And the one who's going to be the builder of it, and we learn later as prophecy unfolds, becomes the chief cornerstone of the building, is the same one who would overthrow Satan and his power. Lay his life down, picture it, like a foundational stone for others to build upon. And Peter picks it up, even toward the end of the New Testament, and uses such vivid words like, you and I are living stones being built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ in a holy building to God, a holy nation of priests and kings. We've overcome if we're Christ's. And so you see that promise fulfilled. So in 2 Samuel 7, we have this hallmark passage. Now, I've set all that up to come to this point. Three chapters later, after David is just blown away and says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? That you would say one would reign forever from David. See, he understood the messianic implications from this. He wrote about it in the Psalms. David got it. David understood that this promise that, that he had heard about, now he was waiting upon, actually, he played a role, a major role, in bringing about the Christ. And so he falls on his knees in prayer and says, Who am I, O Lord? Just three chapters later, we see this man who, by falling upon his knees, had reached great heights through God's glorifying him and lifting him up, take another tremendous, tremendous fall. So great that Charles Simeon, a great Jewish scholar, one whom I've enjoyed reading on Old Testament especially, he said this is one of the most melancholy transactions, speaking of 2 Samuel 11 and 12, one of the most melancholy transactions that has ever taken place in the world because it was performed by a man who till that time had made the highest profession of religion, and have been characterized even by God Himself as a man after His own heart. Immediately, following the promise of an eternal king through David, we have the premier example in the Old Testament. The premier example in the Old Testament of one who has fallen from great heights to find himself in need of a Savior. The hero of Israel... David who slew the giant and turned the tables of Israel against their enemies and began to exalt Israel as the great nation whom God had intended. The hero of Israel 
now needs a hero. The man after God's own heart needs a new heart. The sweet psalmist of Israel needs a new song. David fell from great heights. Let's talk a little bit about that. Anthony is speaking of intimacy on Sunday evenings. Intimacy, he's been revealing to us, is both to know and to be known by another. To share yourself and receive another in kindred spirit. The greatest intimacy we can know is that which is shared with our own Creator and Maker, Jehovah God. That's the greatest intimacy that you and I can have. Now think of it for just a second. We can and ought to know our Maker in a deeper sense even than any other person on the earth, for He made us. We can deduce that He is there, not by seeing Him with our bare eyes, but through nature, through power, and through love, intimately so, through Jesus Christ coming to the earth. God with us. He is the one through whom we are meant to seek intimacy to the highest level with God. You also may enjoy intimacy with a close friend. Think of David and Jonathan, how they loved one another as brothers. Even as a, a man can grow close to his wife, it says in that same depth of relationship, they enjoyed closeness in their friendship and they clung together through everything in that same level of commitment. You can enjoy that intimacy with your spouse, therefore, and that is an intent of marriage. That is an intention of marriage, and marriage we've also discussed on a number of occasions over the last few years is a reflection, as Paul discusses in Ephesians chapter 5, a reflection of how we are to be with Christ our Lord in the church. So he draws upon marriage because we live that daily here and says, this is only a reflection of the depth of relationship that we're to have with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. With that one, he is always faithful. But even with our human partner, there is fault. And so it's imperfect what we have. It's perfect with Christ. We can enjoy that intimacy with children. Hard to put into words the, uh, the, the depth of love that you have for a child. But what we find in this narrative in 2 Samuel is that sex... I'll get your attention back. Parker! Parker! We love you. <laughs> we love you, Parker. Anthony has been discussing sexual intimacy, and we've learned from him on Sunday nights also this thing, that sex is an expression 
of the deeper intimacy that is intended by God to be held between two people in marriage. That's why the sacredness of it in the marriage bond. To be fully known, come together in commitment, and then to share all things with each other. David ran into a big problem when he sought to go outside of his marriage relationship. Not to mention that he had more than one wife, which seems to be brushed over, but it's not. He should have only ever had one, as any man should only ever have had one wife. And he tries to shortcut intimacy and within one night somehow enjoy it with a woman named Bathsheba. He traded in for that night intimacy that he had built with God his whole life. Traded it in for, for that night. Oh, what a dreadful thing that turned into. We often talk about David's sin, but in fact, it was a whole chain reaction of sins, as is usually the case when we're deceived and then seek to deceive to try to cover up our sins rather than confess them. Have you noticed in the Bible how, especially in older translations, that intimacy in marriage is, is described in this way? And Adam knew his wife, and she bore Cain or Abel or Seth. He knew her. When I was little, we used to, we used to laugh on our breath at that. That's a cute little way God used to describe that without saying sex. But now that we're, we're pulling you know, these details out as we go, and Anthony's really specifically honing in on this subject on Sunday nights, I've been blessed to realize that there's a reason why God said, he knew her, referring to that intimacy that was there. Have you also noticed on occasions where there is inappropriate sexual activity that he went into her tent? He lay with her as in the case of David. It doesn't say he knew her that night. Have you noticed that? I had not noticed that. Something I've enjoyed learning and now desire to go back and, and look deeper into. God used that word on purpose, and David cashed it in. He pursued a distorted view of intimacy and found himself deep in the darkest days of his life, lonely and ashamed. Today we use the word and the phrase, make love, to kind of just cover all <laughs> all. Uh, sexual intimacy, but you can neither make love nor intimacy in one night. It's built. It's a relationship that's shared between the two, and so found himself in a fix. I personally counted no less than 16 sins that David committed over this period of, I'm trying to nail it down, perhaps weeks or even months of trying to cover his sin with this woman on that night. See, she became pregnant with his child. While one of his mighty men, Uriah the Hittite, was leading a battle and he stayed back in Jerusalem, his sin found him out. 
She sent back to him and said, I'm with your child. <laughs> I'm with child, it's yours. And so he goes through this process of covering it up. And as long as he does this, he is going to be outside of the blessing of God. He is going to be leading further away from the grace of God. His intimacy with God is going to be further and further out of reach as he desperately seeks to cover this thing up, even to the point of murder, not just of Uriah, but the other men who fell with him as he gave poor command to come close to a city to besiege it so that Uriah would die. See, others died with him. He developed quite a list of problems. And the consequences, the consequences are tremendous. Not just from the aspect that we're talking about David with God right now. Look at the, look at the immediate earthly consequences. God said, I also would have given you much more had you not done this. Who knows what the Bible may have recorded about the exaltation and greatness of David and his kingdom had he not done this. God said, I was prepared to give you much more than what David had already said. Who am I that you brought me thus far from a shepherd to the king of Israel and the power of the world? Well, we don't know. That's a humbling thought. I don't know how much God would have blessed me had I not sinned in my life on, on occasions small or great. I'll never know. I don't like that, do you? Do you like that thought? I feel like a blessed person right now, but I may be blessed greatly beyond in various ways, perhaps with a deeper faith, than in my sins having spent time in shame, time dejected, days where I felt like I just wasn't worth anything to anybody and just wasted those days, wasted that precious time. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's just one thing. I did get off a little bit on that, sorry. But that's a powerful thought to me. He said, the sword shall never depart from your house. He said, I'll raise up adversity against you from your own house. Can you say Absalom and others? His wives, that is his concubines, Absalom went into them in that temporal coup where he overthrew his own father and, and, and David had to flee him. Absalom went into those concubines that stayed behind. The child of that one night stand died. And other inadvertent consequences like David seeming unable to adequately parent on some occasions to follow. Amnon and the rape that took place there between his son and daughter. Absalom and the way that he dealt or didn't deal with Absalom. Joab pretty much saved his kingdom by instructing him to go out and be with the people when they needed to see the king strong. There's all kinds of things like that, guys. This is why God hates sin. Can I have your attention for a minute, everyone? Really focus on this. This is why God hates sin. It destroys true intimacy. Real intimacy that He has desired from before the creation. 
that he would find his glory in the pinnacle of his creation called mankind. Each one of us created in his image to bring him glory through our service and through our, our great works and our great acts of love toward one another and toward him. He sought that glory and we choose a distorted, to use Anthony's adjective, a distorted view of intimacy and we pursue shortcuts like David did, whether it's sexual or otherwise. Through greed and in many other ways we pursue these shortcuts. And God just sees us destroying what could have been. He hates sin. But this is why also you can hate sin and love the sinner. We'll see now, we're going to see now how things get turned around. It is with this tremendous crushing burden of guilt and shame, that is when Nathan the prophet came to him, called him out on his sins, God had not uh, been somewhere where he couldn't see all that was going on. So he sent Nathan, and Nathan condemned him for those sins, and also uh, corrected him. And David said, and here's the great turning point, he said, I've sinned against the Lord. Now, Adam said, this woman you gave me. <laughs> Eve said, this devil made me do it. We saw a couple weeks ago that King Saul said, I've sinned, Samuel, but come with me so that the people will honor, honor me and worship as I worship God. David just said, I've sinned. And then he wrote Psalm 51. Turn with me to Psalm 51. I want to encourage you not only to read with me Psalm 51, I want you to go home and reread it and reread it again. I, I don't want to encourage you just to read it. I want to encourage you to absorb it. I intended today at the beginning to preach through this psalm. But I went back and forth. There's so many things. But I definitely wanted to make sure we read it together. It's set to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, and I'll add, been called out for it in some time soon thereafter. This prayer of David, the Holy Spirit said, I want to guide your repentance, and I want to write down what true repentance and confession looks like for my people hereafter. <laughs> if I'm David, I'm thinking, really? I really don't want anybody to know all of this. And hear what God does. Now think of it. Think of this. God takes the greatest fall of the greatest man, perhaps, in Israel's history, one of the greatest, and highlights it on a marquee for all to see, pouring out his heart. We today would say, that's shameful, hide that, cover that. We try to cover up the history of our leaders in our own country and their faults as quickly as we can. And if we don't like them, we try to uncover it. But we tend to rewrite history, and God said, I want this history to be recorded in my word, which shall never be destroyed. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity 
and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just and blameless when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear gladness and joy, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Can you hear him praying? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and the tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or I'd give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise, as if to say, and I've got one right now. He's not in the temple offering sacrifices, is he? He's on his knees. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem, and then you'll be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. Then with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then they shall offer bowls on your altar. First, I offer you my broken spirit, and then I will go and worship you according to your commandment. David had lost intimacy with God, and it was the most dreadful thing he had ever faced. He faced, we'll never know what it was like to be lined up for battle and looking across a valley at another army ready to come at you with a bunch of sharp pieces of metal. <laughs> we'll never know. He was more terrified of this than that. What if God left me? Take not your spirit from me, God. He called out. You see, just like Paul the Apostle stands out as the premier example of the grace of God to save sinners in the New Testament, that murderer of Christians who said, I'm the chief among sinners. Listen to me, this is a true and trustworthy saying. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And he said he showed mercy to me as a pattern to all those who will believe after me. David is that example in the Old Testament. Big difference. Jesus Christ is a millennium away yet. A millennium. A thousand years away yet is the child to be born. Look at the irony. His own child from his own body he's going to turn to to save him. Saul, realizing that he is persecuting those who are being saved by him, falls from his great height to his knees and prays for God's forgiveness. And then thereafter is restored, and he said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
This ought to be the most frightening thing in the world to us, that we would allow our disobedience to stand between us and the love of God. A holy God, a just God who will punish the sins of men in themselves if we do not put it upon Him who bore our sins upon Himself on the tree of Calvary. Now that's the choice. Our sins will be punished. Do we want to displace them upon Christ and allow Him to impute His righteousness upon us and cover us? Cover us with the clothing of Christ so that we can stand pure before God in His righteousness? Or do we want to try to be self-righteous? David tried that for a little while. Instead of falling to his knees in shame, well, instead of avoiding it in the first place, but once he sinned, he, instead of falling to his knees, he sought to cover it up. We can try to resolve our own sin problem through self-righteousness, which the Pharisees were known for. Well, look how good I am. How could God condemn me? Or through self-hate, which Judas experienced. That's one of the two choices you have if you're going to try to do this on your own. Self-righteousness or self-hate? Because you're going to fail. Or we can employ the grace of God through Jesus Christ. See, to David, he was yet coming. To us, he has come, but he has not departed from us. David said, don't take your spirit from me, Lord. And we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit through him. When we obey him in faith, trusting in his promise that Christ is the one, he is the one that God gave to the world to bless all the families of the earth by. And God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so when we put our faith in Christ to save us from our sins, you know what it looks like? It looks like Psalm 51. It looks like a man on his knees or a woman on her knees. It looks like Saul of Tarsus, blinded for three days. When we realize that we are not going to be saved without Christ, that's what it looks like. That's humbling. But when we realize that we can be restored to an intimate relationship through Christ and be renewed in the likeness of Christ, Romans 8, again, this is what lifted these men up off of their knees. Let's close by reading 2 Samuel chapter 23, the last words of David. Listen to how he puts this in perspective. 2 Samuel 23. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Quote, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, David said, and His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, and he quotes, here's what God said, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, 
a morning without clouds like the tender grass springing up out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. Unquote. And then David says, although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, now listen closely, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Wow. I feel like David when I can say, well, I've at least been given rule over my own family. And I want to say, because of me, my house is not so to where every day is bright and shining sun coming up in flawlessness. But this I know, and this I present to you, that our all in all, Jesus Christ, our all things, our every, every need in all things has been ordered to give forgiveness to those who call upon His name, and it's established and it's secure in Him. Won't you put Him on in faith today and be baptized for the remission of your sins and obey that simple call of all the disobedience? Don't disobey that road to restoration. That we cannot afford to get wrong. I cannot know certain things about the Bible. I can disobey things and God is willing to forgive me, but I cannot get salvation wrong. Let David, let Paul, let this lesson guide you to that restoration, to that intimacy that God has sought to enjoy with you from before the world was. Let's stand and sing this song.